Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Our speaker this evening is Professor of Theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville, John Bergsma served as a Protestant pastor for four years before entering the Catholic Church in 2001 while pursuing a PhD from the University of Notre Dame specializing in the Old Testament and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Since 2004, his primary work has been forming the theology and catechetics majors of Franciscan University in Scripture. A frequent guest on Relevant Radio's Drew Mariani Show and Sacred Heart Radio's Sunrise Morning Show, Dr. Bergsma has appeared on EWTN's The Journey Home and Life on the Rock and speaks regularly at conferences and parishes nationwide. Dr. Bergsma has numerous academic and popular publications, including the books Bible Basics for Catholics and New Testament Basics for Catholics from Ave Maria Press. He and his wife Dawn reside with their eight children in Steubenville, Ohio. Please join me in welcoming to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Dr. John Bergsma. Thank you, Danny. So folks, we are uh, embarking on a three-week journey uh, through salvation history um, on this uh, path of Advent that, uh, that we're journeying on together. And the goal of our journey is to come to a better understanding of our Lord and his birth and the significance of the events uh, surrounding his birth um, and, and why uh, his entrance into the history of Israel uh, truly fulfilled the expectations of God's people. And um, we've entitled this presentation House of Bread, and uh, uh, I've given it the subtitle Incarnation and Eucharist in Salvation History. And again, we're really going to be building up to understanding this um, uh, statement from Luke 2, the account of the birth of our Lord, when Joseph went up to Galilee to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. And as you probably all know, uh, Bethlehem means in the Hebrew language, house of bread. Beth or Beit, that first element means house, and Lechem. Uh, means bread. So put them together, house of bread. Bethlehem was called the house of bread, by the way, because it was one of the uh, most important um, grain growing regions in Judea and in Israel. Um, kind of like, say, Nebraska or Kansas would be for the U.S., you know, where wheat and corn are being grown. So Bethlehem was very important in that regard. And so our Lord was born in Bethlehem, the house of bread, the, the home of David. And our blessed mother gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger. Of course, a manger is a feed trough. And so 
we have the Christ child uh, born um, in the house of bread and laid in a feeding trough uh, to to be eaten as the bread of life for the world. And in that one event, uh, we see the fulfillment of so many motifs, so many themes, so many expectations from the Old Testament. And that's what we're going to be working on understanding as uh, as we travel through uh, the scriptures and uh, build up to the birth of Christ in the coming weeks. So uh, we're going to enjoy ourselves and um, have a little fun while we do it. Hopefully, uh, you either printed off the handout or you have a blank piece of paper that you can divide into um, seven boxes, somewhat like uh, is before you on the screen. Um, they are blank because we're going to be drawing in those boxes. And uh, hopefully, you've got uh, pencils at the ready and can uh, start sketching with me shortly. And I'll, I'll let you know when to do that. Um, at the end of our three sessions, uh, your sheet is going to look something like this that I have before you here with these uh, various pivotal moments of the biblical storyline sketched out in such an elegant fashion uh, in these uh, different boxes. So I just show this to you in advance so you get an idea of where. Uh, we're going with this and uh, where we're going to end up. So, as I said, um, by the uh, by the end of the three Thursdays, we are going to have a sheet that looks something like that. Tonight, we're just going to do the first three boxes. We're going to talk about the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, and the Abrahamic covenant, and how they anticipate the birth of our Lord. Just those three. Next week, we're going to do the Mosaic and Davidic covenants. And uh, in the last and climactic week, we're going to be studying the prophets and then uh, the birth of our Lord himself and how his birth anticipates Calvary and the Eucharist and uh, those good things. So without further ado, um, let's get into it. If we're going to travel through the scripture in a relatively brief amount of time, um, three Thursday evenings, we've got to have some focus. And our focus is going to be on the theme of covenant, which many of you have probably uh, thought about before. Um, but uh, we need to answer the question, what is a covenant? You know, we use this term covenant uh, at every Mass. At every Mass, the Eucharist is called the New and Eternal Covenant. But if Gallup Poll were to put pollsters at the back of Catholic churches all over the country and ask uh, Catholics leaving Mass, what is a covenant? Uh, I think they'd find a lot of head scratching. Folks just don't really know what it is. Um, here's a handy definition. A covenant is the extension of kinship by oath. Okay, That's the briefest, handiest definition I've ever found. The extension of kinship by oath. Uh, basically, that means it's a way of swearing someone into your family, right? Bringing them into the family is extending kinship, and swearing is an oath. That's really what a covenant is all about. So a covenant is ordered to family, and I can't stress that enough. Some people think that covenant just means law. 
Some th people think it's the equivalent of a contract. Some people just think it's a fancy name for an agreement. Those are all partial truths, but partial untruths. Really, it's about family. It's about bringing people into family. So why should we as Catholics think that covenant is important? Um, you know, I come from a Protestant tradition, the Calvinist tradition, that talks a lot about covenant. And sometimes people think that uh, the only reason I talk about covenant is because I'm a former Protestant and a convert. Um, but that's not true. I didn't get excited about covenant until I became a Catholic. And um, uh, we as Catholics ought to be very concerned about this idea of covenant because uh, we're the ones who um, copied and recopied and preserved the Bible for millennia, long before there were any Protestants around. And uh, we Catholics are the ones who put the Bible together and organized it into its two parts, uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we know the word testament is just a Latin form of the word covenant. So our holy book is divided into two parts on the basis of the principle of covenant, the old and the new one. So that's pretty important if it's the major division of our holy book. Um, not only that, but our liturgy uses the term quite a bit. The liturgy used to say again and again, you offered a covenant to man. Um, now the way that's phrased is time and again, you offered them covenants. Um, but this is the way the fourth Eucharistic prayer summarizes uh, all of the Old Testament, basically, as a series of covenants. And at every Mass, uh, the Eucharist, which is the source and the summit of our Catholic faith, is called the new and eternal covenant. Well, if the source and summit of our faith is a covenant, that means that's pretty important, and we ought to know something about it um, to be well-educated, well-formed Catholics. And think about this statement in the Mass that the Eucharist is the new and eternal covenant. That implies that there were old and temporary ones that preceded the Eucharist. And if we don't know anything about the old and temporary ones that came before, we can't appreciate why the new and eternal one is so great. Okay? We can't appreciate the Eucharist without knowing something about the covenants that have come before. So this is why we're focusing on this in these uh, coming weeks. Um, you might ask the question, why does God deal with us through covenants? And it's because he wants to make us his family. That's the extension of kinship by oath. We're not God's family by nature. By nature, we're our mud. Um, we're clay, the clay of the earth, and God formed us in our bodies. Um, but, uh, but he wants to make us into his children, and he does that by, by inviting us into the covenant. Of course, the Holy Spirit is very much involved in bringing us into the covenant, too, and we'll have an opportunity to talk about how the Spirit and the covenant are related as we move along. But, uh, but you may also ask, well, what about, what about this theme of house of bread, okay? Uh, why are we talking about covenants? And, you know, what about, are we going to talk about food somewhere in here? Um, I'm sure there might be some Italians who are, uh, who are uh, logged in here, and uh, they, they want to get to the food part. <laughs> um, so what, 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 do, what do meals have to do with covenant? That's, that's the issue here, what, you know, this house of bread business. And, and the point is this, families eat together. So when you form a family by covenant, 
you often share a meal. And as we move through the Bible, we're going to see that sharing meals is often involved in making or reaffirming a uh, covenant, and most especially with the new and eternal one uh, through uh, our Lord. So that's all a little background. We haven't done any drawing yet, so you haven't need to sketch anything. But now we're going to do some drawing. And uh, we're going to start in the upper left uh, corner of, um, of your sheet, uh, of that little box up there. And uh, we're going to sketch in the first major stage of the Bible and salvation history. And that's what we call the Adamic or the Creation Covenant. And so we're going to draw here. First, we're going to draw Mount Eden. A lot of people don't realize Eden was a mountain, but it was. It was a mountain with a garden on top. In that garden was the tree of life. So we're going to sketch in the tree of life there, up in our upper left square. And on the tree of life, there were exactly four apples. I've done a lot of research on this, so I would know. And that's mentioned in Genesis 2.9. And um, from the Garden in Eden, there proceeded a great river. It's often called the River of Life uh, that flowed from Eden and divided into four rivers at the foot of the mountain from which it watered the whole earth. That's a very important symbol and reality, that river of life flowing out of the garden. We're going to see this again and again in the Bible and in salvation history. And that's mentioned in Genesis 2.10. And then, of course, we have Adam and Eve uh, up on the garden at the top of the mountain. There's Adam, and here's Eve, wearing the latest in stick figure fashion. Isn't she elegant? And, uh, and then below, <coughs> below the tree of life, <coughs> we have a little space, excuse me. We're going to sketch in a gold bar. And uh, that's what that is. That's a gold bar. And uh, we're going to make it shine. The gold that was near to Eden is mentioned in Genesis 2.12. And then over on the other side where we have some space under Adam and Eve, we're going to put some jewels. Just make little diamond shapes and make them shine. Um, those are also mentioned. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> In Genesis 2.12, you might ask, well, what's the significance of the gold and the jewels that are mentioned? The significance is this. Eden was the first sanctuary or the first place of worship in salvation history. And you have to have gold and jewels to decorate your sanctuary, to decorate the abode of God. And uh, they were present there in the garden. And finally, we're going to put in our angel. The angel is mentioned in Genesis 3. Going to give him the sword that he has. Eventually, he'll use to keep out Adam and Eve from the garden after they sin. And uh, at this point, we have sketched in our little image of the first stage in salvation history where Adam and Eve were at perfect peace in the vertical relationship with God, and they were at perfect peace in the horizontal relationship with nature. And uh, and all the other creatures, and they lived or were intended to live as children of God in this place of peace and perfection. 
So having said that, let's, um, let's double click on Adam here and uh, zoom in on him. If you're sketching at home, you can flip your sketch papers uh, to the back and orient your page uh, portrait. Um, and we're going to draw a big Adam on the back of our note page. So there we go. There's a big Adam. Don't be embarrassed that he's naked. It's before the fall, so it's okay. There's Adam. And uh, we're gonna talk about the five roles of Adam. And this, uh, this makes a nice little standalone lesson, by the way, if you ever have to do uh, you know, some, some impromptu catechesis. Um, the five roles of Adam, because it helps us to understand what it means to be in a covenant relationship with God. So let's talk about Adam. His first role in the covenant that he was in with God was a son, because after all, a covenant brings you into the family. So Genesis 126 uh, speaks of Adam being made in the image and the likeness of God. What does it mean to be in the image and likeness? Well, the Bible itself gives us a clue because in Genesis 5.3, it says that years later, a son was born to Adam named Seth, and Seth was in the image and the likeness of his father, Adam. Aha! A light bulb moment, okay? That means that image and likeness describes what a son is to his father. So taking that knowledge back to Genesis 1.26, we realize that Adam was created to be a son or a child of God. And so how on our little sketch can we represent the fact that Adam is a son of God? What I like to do, first of all, is make his face shine. And I call this the filial shine. Filial being a great Latin word that means sunly but we don't have a word in English, sunly, so I have to use the Latin, filial. So that's a fun little word. It means sonship. So there's uh, Adam's face shining with the glory of his father. And another thing I like to do is I like to give him a smile. He is happy because he is a son of God. And that, that should reflect in each one of us. We should be continually joyful because you and I, by virtue of our baptism, we have been made children of God. And that's such a wonderful thing. It could fill us with unending happiness and joy. Um, so what else about Adam? What other roles did he have? Well, he was a king. Genesis 1.26 says that God gave him dominion over all the fish and the birds and the creeping things, etc. And that word dominion in the Hebrew is definitely a term for kingship, which will later be used, for example, of Solomon, when Solomon rules in glory over the known world. So how do we represent that Adam is a king? Well, we're gonna either draw over or erase a little bit of the shine and give him a crown. And then in his right hand, we're going to give him a scepter. And that necessitates giving him fingers so that he can hold that scepter. So we'll put that in there as well. And then what else? Um, Adam was also a priest. Genesis 2.15 says that God literally put him into the garden to work and to guard the garden. Those terms are loaded. That is, they've got a, a double meaning or a, a further meaning. If we search the Hebrew Bible, 
for the terms work and guard together, the next time we'll find them popping up together is going to be in the book of Numbers, where together the verbs work and guard describe the whole duty of the Levites and the priests when they enter into the sanctuary. The priests were supposed to work in the sanctuary, which meant really to celebrate the liturgy. That was their work, their liturgia, the work of the people. And they were supposed to guard the sanctuary by keeping anything evil out. So, so when Adam is put into the garden to work and to guard there in, uh, in Genesis 2.15, um, that really, to a Hebrew reader, has the connotations of a priestly duty. So how are we going to represent the priesthood of Adam? We're going to give him a stole, and uh, we can't put crosses on the bottom, so uh, we'll put stars of David. Um, even that's anachronistic, but hey, play along with me, folks. Got a, got a little bit of poetic license. So got a stole there for our priest, uh, Adam, and uh, we go on to talk about his other roles. Adam was also a prophet. Um, in Genesis 2, 19 through 20, it describes um, the animals being brought to Adam and, um, and God allowing Adam to name the animals. This is a very significant event that people don't reflect on enough, I think. But let, just think about it with me. Up until this point in Genesis, who has been naming everything? Why? Of course, God's been naming everything, right? He names the day and the night. He names the sea and the sky, et cetera, et cetera. God's doing all the naming. Well, suddenly at this point in Genesis 2, God turns over his right and responsibility of naming to Adam. Now, there's a principle in the Bible that if you makes it, you names it. Um, so God makes these animals, and yet God doesn't name the animals. He allows Adam to do that. And really what you see is a deputization going on here, where Adam is being deputed with divine authority to speak on behalf of God, because necessarily naming involves speaking. When Adam sits there saying, giraffe, orangutan, squid you know when he's naming these different creatures he is speaking with divine authority and what do we call someone who speaks with divine authority well of course we call them a prophet so so it's really pointing to the the prophetic role of adam and uh, so let's represent him as a prophet what are we going to do well we're going to reconfigure his face a little bit first of all give him a big mouth because that's what prophets had they were always shooting off their big mouths and getting themselves in trouble throughout the uh, history of Scripture. And uh, we're going to give him a serene expression as he calmly uh, proclaims uh, the Word of God on behalf of God. So now finally, the fifth role of Adam is that of bridegroom. Um, near the end of Genesis 2, we read that it was not good for man to be alone. And in uh, Genesis 2, 23 through 25, we get the account of the woman as Adam is placed into deep sleep and the woman is uh, built from his rib. It literally says in Hebrew that the woman is built from his rib, not simply made, but built. You might ask, well, why does the Hebrew say built? It's because she's a temple. There's a correlation uh, between femininity, femininity and the temple all through the Bible masculinity and priesthood, 
femininity and templehood. Uh, the two go hand in hand. They go together like peanut butter and jelly. Both are necessary for salvation history. And so the, um, the woman Eve is brought to Adam, and when he sees her, he cries out in beautiful Hebrew poetry, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That, those are actually words that are fairly similar to what probably was the ancient Israelite wedding vows. And so Adam forms a covenant between himself and Eve there at the end of Genesis 2. And that is his final role. It's his role as bridegroom. And so how do we represent his role as bridegroom? Well, you have to give him a left hand first of all and then we got to bring up a finger uh, a, excuse me bring up a ring and put it on that uh, ring finger of his so that uh, we can represent him as being wedded and espoused to eve and so this completes our picture this is this is what it's like to be in a covenant with god because you are a child of god these roles of king and priest and prophet flow from your divine childhood and each one of us in a covenant relationship with God has a spousal role. And our truest spouse is Christ himself. And so this is a beautiful picture in a way of what we're called to as Christians. Of course, Jesus was all of these things. Our Lord was son of God, king, priest, prophet, and the ultimate bridegroom. And um, the catechism talks about um, these roles being also for us by virtue of our baptism. We are baptized into Christ. Okay, so that was a little uh, close-up on Adam and a little bit more about what it means to be in a covenant relationship with God. We're going to move along now. You don't have to draw this, but you might say, well, okay, so we were in this perfect peace in Eden at the beginning of uh, the Bible. What happened? Well, there was a fall, a fall into sin that involved the consumption of fruit, it was a kind of a wrongful eating. Um, is a contrast to the rightful eating, which will eventually be Christ, the bread of life in the form of the Eucharist. Um, just as we sinned by eating, so we are brought to righteousness by eating. There's this beautiful parallelism in Scripture. But Adam and Eve, they ate wrongly, and then their nakedness was exposed, and they were ashamed and they experienced a curse. And all this is recounted in Genesis 3, 1 through 24. And basically they disrupted that family relationship that they were in with God by rejecting God as their father. They did not trust him and they disobeyed him. And that started mankind along a dark path. So at this point, our sheets should look like this with our little diagram of Eden in the corner. And then we can make a little box within a box here in the upper uh, right of uh, the Eden box. And in, in these little boxes, the boxes within a box uh, on our diagram, we're going to put the food or the meal that is associated with each of the stages of biblical history or each of the covenants, if you will. And it's the tree of life. It's the fruit of the tree of life that is really the covenant meal of um, the Adamic or creation covenant. And 
Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden and excluded from that covenantal meal of the food of life, the fruit of life. And the rest of the Bible is, in a way, going to be an epic about returning to the tree of life and being able to eat once more from the fruit of life. But that's going to take a while, and there's going to be many stages to this epic journey. The next stage uh, focuses around Noah. What happened between Adam and Noah? Well, things went from bad to worse. And um, uh, basically, mankind uh, increased in their sin and filled the earth uh, to the point that the earth itself was filled with a kind of sexualized violence, which is implied in the verses of Genesis 6, uh, 1 through 4. And uh, when things had become so debased and so violent and perverted, finally um, God decided that it was time, as it were, to wash the earth clean and to, as it were, rewind salvation history and start again on a better footing to start again with the most righteous man on the earth. And that, of course, was Noah. And so the scriptures tell us that the Lord sent a flood, a flood which plunged the world back into the waters um, that originally covered the earth in the first place, as we note in Genesis 1-2. And then after the flood washed over the earth, God sent the spirit, the ruach in Hebrew, the wind, to blow back the waters and to reveal the dry land once more, just as the dry land first came out of creation. And um, the first point of the dry land that emerged from the waters was Mount Ararat. And so we just draw in our second box there, Mount Ararat, which is a kind of new Eden. And on top of Mount Ararat, let's draw the ark. The ark was a big boxy structure, big barge-like thing. Some people draw it with a prow and a stern, but folks, it didn't have to go anywhere. It did not have to be hydrodynamic. And uh, if all you have to do is float, square is the best shape for holding a lot of stuff. So I think the ark was a big bargey thing, like the coal barges that go up and down the Ohio River, about a mile from my house. And uh, when the ark landed on Ararat, down comes the gangplank, and uh, we open the side of the ark, and uh, out comes Noah. I'm sure he was glad to get out of the ark. And uh, there's Noah. And out come the animals, the, first the snakes slithering out, and then the giraffes. Don't worry, we're not going to draw all the animals. Just the snakes and giraffes. I like snakes because snakes are easy to draw. And I always draw giraffes just because I like giraffes. And besides, I'm sure they were very eager to get off the ark. After 150 days, if they were in there any longer, they would have been seeing a chiropractor for the rest of their lives with all those cervical vertebrae. Anyway, there's Noah, and um, he builds an altar after getting off the ark and places some wood on the top of the altar and sacrifices some of the clean animals that he brought along on the ark just for that purpose. And that, uh, that sacrifice goes up, and the Bible describes it as a pleasing aroma. 
that goes before the nostrils of God. And God smells the sweet-smelling sacrifice, and uh, he pronounces a covenant upon Noah. And uh, grants Noah a covenant at the end of Genesis 8 and the beginning of Genesis 9. And he tells Noah to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. Language that we heard um, in Genesis chapter 1. And so that clues us in that the covenant relationship that God originally had with Adam, he renewed with Noah. And so Noah is like a new Adam figure, a new father of the human race, and also one who will once more live as a son of God in relationship with God. So sonship is restored with the Noahic covenant in Genesis 8 and 9. But unfortunately, some of the shalom is lost. Shalom is a very wonderful Hebrew word that means peace. And uh, it means it in a very comprehensive way, a wholeness or an integrity. Unfortunately, when God remakes the covenant with Noah in Genesis 8 and 9, there's not perfect peace because now there is fear between Noah and the animals. And Noah, in fact, can eat the animals, which may be a cause for why they feared him. But in any event, um, we have now this tension between man and nature, between man and the animals. And that tension uh, and that fear that's present there uh, reflects on a horizontal level the fact that there is some imperfection in the vertical relationship uh, between uh, Noah and uh, God. So although the covenant is restored, there is something imperfect, and we don't have the the um, the perfect peace that Adam and Eve experienced when there was no fear between themselves and nature, and uh, they could sleep in peace in the garden and not have to worry about anything from the animals. So that's a little bit about the Noahic covenant there in Genesis 8 and uh, 9. And you might say, well, what happened after the covenant with Noah? Well, already in Genesis 9, we have a certain kind of fall of Noah. It's an interesting little story. In um, Genesis 9, 20 through 27, we read that uh, Noah um, planted a vineyard and uh, made wine from the fruit and consumed the fruit through the form of wine. And uh, he got drunk. And that, of course, is wrong for him to do. You might say, well, why does the Bible say or imply, at least, that it was wrong for Noah to get drunk. Well, you have to understand that Noah was a priest, um, just like his ancestor uh, Adam. As father of a new human race, he had a natural priestly role. And priests are never allowed to get drunk in Scripture or in salvation history because a priest invested with sacred powers can never lose the use of his reason which might lead him to misuse the sacred powers that he has. So that's why it was wrong for Noah to get drunk, and he did get drunk, and his nakedness was exposed in his tent, and Ham uh, came into his tent and saw him and mocked him. Uh, the other sons of Noah attempted to uh, cover over their father's shame, but there was shame involved. And when Noah woke up, he cursed the descendants of Ham. And so we have a story involving the wrongful consumption of fruit, followed by nakedness, shame, and curse. Aha! When we put it like that, we see 
that what Noah experienced there is a recapitulation or a repeat of the sin in the Garden of Adam, Eden. And thus, um, sin is reintroduced into the human family, and things once more go from bad to worse. So at this point, um, our little diagram should look like this. We should have the Adamic covenant in the first square and an image of the tree of life in our little inset representing the food associated with that covenant. And then in this second square, we should have the Noahic covenant. I forgot the label Noahic here, but you can write it in there. And uh, up in this corner, uh, we can have the uh, food um, associated with the uh, covenant of Noah which was um, the sacrificial animal, uh, presumably a ram or a lamb. And that's what I've drawn there, that uh, sacrifice. So notice the, the move between the Adamic to the Noahic covenant, how the, um, the food associated with the covenant goes from, from the fruit of life, okay, to, to an animal that has to be killed, okay? And this shows that between the Adamic and the Noahic, we have the intervention of sin. And sin involves death, and sin necessitates sacrifice, and sin necessitates atonement. And so uh, there was not the need for sacrifice and atonement in the covenant in its original perfection in, e in Eden. And so it was merely the fruit of the tree of life. Nothing had to die for them to eat of the covenantal food. But now, because of sin, something needs to die. And so we see that there's been a shift in salvation history as we move now to Noah. But let's move on now to the third stage of salvation history, and the last that we're going to cover tonight. And that's the stage of the Abrahamic covenant. What happened between Noah and Abraham? Well, once more, things went from bad to worse in the human family. Sin proliferated among the descendants of Noah till it reached a point that um, all of the descendants of Noah, the, basically the whole human race, gathered together in Genesis 11 to build a tower of defiance against God. We call that the Tower of Babel. Although God had told them to scatter and disperse and fill the earth, they refused to do so. They wanted to build a city, city and remain uh, together. And uh, the, the uh, piece de resistance of the architecture of the city, this centerpiece was uh, this great tower that was a symbol of their defiance against God. Well, we know the aftermath of that story. God confused their languages and that forced them to disperse around the earth. But the after effects were rather sad because now we have uh, mankind being estranged from God, who they've just tried to defy, but also estranged from each other. And what is going to happen now with all this estrangement when God's purpose was that humanity would be joined to him in a family? Well, God is going to intervene to bring humanity back to himself and back to the divine family. But God is going to use a different approach than the flood. Don't need to draw yet. Okay, we're just going to go over some background for the Abrahamic covenant. This is a different approach than the flood. We're not going to wipe the world clean uh, and start over. Now we're going to work with one man's family 
to restore blessing to all the world. It's going to be kind of an infiltration strategy through the family of one man. And that man, of course, is going to be Abraham, or Abram, as he's introduced to us uh, in Genesis uh, 12. And God singles this righteous man, Abram, out and uh, reveals himself to Abram and grants him a triple blessing at the beginning of the story of Abraham in Genesis 12. And this blessing that God bestows on Abraham when God first reveals himself to this great man goes like this. I will make of you, O Abraham, a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and by you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see, there's three elements to this blessing, and I've underlined them in red. We can summarize them in this way. Great nation, great name, and great blessing. And a little bit more about the second promise there, the great name. You have to understand that in the ancient world, this idea of a great name was associated with royalty, and it basically meant kingship. So great nation, great name, which means royalty, and a great blessing for all the families of the earth. This is going to happen by, by Abraham and through Abraham, that all the families of the earth will be blessed to be able to be reunited to God, ultimately. And so, again, don't draw yet, but just let's just go quickly over some of the chapters of Genesis, basically Genesis chapters 12 through 18, which give us the early story of Abraham. And in these chapters, God takes these three promises and he raises each one to the level of a covenant. You might say, well, what's the difference between a promise and a covenant? It's kind of like the difference between an engagement ring and a wedding ring. A promise is binding, but a covenant is more solemn. And so this first promise, I'll make you a great nation, God raises that to the level of a covenant with Abraham a few chapters later in Genesis 15, where we get a very interesting account, the account of what the Jews call the covenant between the pieces. Um, now I'm going to draw this in here a little bit. And what I'm drawing is a cow, because in Genesis 15, that's a famous chapter that you will remember, where God tells Abraham to take a bunch of animals and to lay them on the ground and cut them in half. So we're going to draw this cow, and you'll notice that this cow has been cut in half. That cow has been bisected. And not just the cow, but the other animals that uh, Abraham was instructed to bring, they are all to be cut in half and laid side by side. And then Genesis 15 tells us that when night fell, a torch and a burning fire pot appeared, and the torch moved between the pieces of the animal. And while the torch did that, God began to speak to Abraham and gave many promises to Abraham. And you, of course, can read about that in Genesis 15. But let's sit back for a moment, just reflect on this story. Isn't this story weird? I mean, I think it is. Um, when I was 12 years old and first read Genesis 15 for the first time, I thought, my goodness, this is pretty crazy. The only thing that I could 
compare it to was the uh, cure for warts out of Huckleberry Finn. You remember that? Where uh, Huck was supposed to swing a dead cat around his head by its tail at midnight in a graveyard, and that was supposed to cure his warts? I mean, this whole business with cutting animals in half and then waiting till nightfall and torches appearing and walking between these cut animals, this is just bizarre. Some, some kind of bizarre ritual. So what is going on here? Actually, folks, this ritual of the cut animals is an ancient covenant-making ritual, and it had a very specific meaning. We know from other ancient sources, from different uh, cultures that were contemporaneous with the Israelites, that people used to do these things back in the day. They would cut the animals and then walk between the pieces. And when you walked between the pieces of the animal, this is what you were saying by performing that ritual. You were saying, if I don't keep my covenant promises, may I be slain like these animals through which I am walking. That's what you were saying. So you're calling down a curse of death upon yourself to back up the truth of the commitments that you were making. And God in Genesis 15 actually condescends to come down and to submit to a human covenant ritual to prove to Abraham the level of commitment that God has to Abraham, that he will make of Abraham a great nation. So that's the first promise that's made into a covenant with Abraham. But in Genesis 15, nothing is said about Abraham becoming royalty yet. That has to wait for the next stage where God will take this promise of a great name, which implies royalty, and he will include that promise of a great name in the covenant with Abraham. And he does that in Genesis 17, which is the account of the covenant of circumcision. Now, circumcision poses some challenges to illustration. So what we will do is simply draw a knife and uh, that will suffice uh, for us to understand uh, what was going on there in Genesis 15, Genesis 17, excuse me. That's the account of, again, the covenant that uh, God made between himself and Abraham through, a circ through circumcision. Observe the pattern that the first time God makes the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, he has Abraham cut an animal. When he comes back and renews the covenant in Genesis 17, adding in now this promise of a great name, that is to say royalty, now he has Abraham cut Abraham's own body. So we are raising the ante here. We are cutting something even more precious. And now finally, when God includes the last promise, the promise of blessing to all the nations with Abraham, God has Abraham cut something even more precious than his own body. He instructs Abraham to cut Abraham's own son. And that leads us now to what we're going to draw in the third square. So look at your third square um, on your papers there. And in that square, we are going to draw Mount Moriah. This is the mountain to which 
God instructed Abraham to travel with his son, his one and only son, Isaac. And there God told Abraham to climb the mountain and to sacrifice his son, Isaac, on top of the mountain. So we read about this in Genesis 22, how Abraham climbed the mountain with his son. We're going to give Abraham a beard so we can tell him apart from Adam and Noah. Otherwise, the family resemblance is so strong, we cannot distinguish them. And there on the top of the mountain, we're going to also draw an altar that Abraham built on the top of Mount Moriah as he prepared to sacrifice his son Isaac. And there, Abraham laid the wood on the top of the altar. And then on top of the altar, he laid his son Isaac. And then he took a great knife and he prepared to sacrifice his son Isaac to God out of obedience to the divine command. Now, this is, of course, a very dramatic episode in Scripture. It is also one of the pivotal points in the Old Testament. And it's also, we might even say, the fountainhead of our salvation. But the key thing that we need to understand about this whole scene is that Isaac is not some little five-year-old that Abraham drags up Mount Moriah kicking and screaming uh, in some uh, terrible example of uh, parental abuse or something like that. No, indeed. Um, it's been known since ancient times from reading Genesis 22 carefully that Isaac was a young man by this point in Abraham's life. And Abraham was a very old man. Abraham was over a hundred years old at this time. Uh, not a very robust figure by any means anymore. He probably had great difficulty just climbing up Mount Moriah. And interestingly, Genesis 22 tells us that Isaac, his son, was the one who carried the wood up the mountainside for the sacrifice. Now, they needed to carry up enough wood to burn up an entire animal, which is quite a load of wood. If you've ever done a little camping and had some experience of cooking in the great outdoors, so that's quite a load of wood that Isaac has to lug up this mountainside. So we know he was a rather robust figure at this time. The ancient rabbis placed his age at somewhere between 17 and 37, depending on which ancient author you read. So we should envision Isaac as a strong young man, able to carry a load of logs up a mountainside, whereas um, his uh, father Abraham, is uh, a rather elderly person who probably had great difficulty just getting up the mountain in the first place. So when they get to the top, let me ask us a question. Let's think about this question. Could Abraham have realistically overpowered his strapping young son to throw him on the altar? And I would suggest to you that the answer to that question is no. Um, he could not have overpowered Isaac. And the ancient rabbis realized this. And for that reason, the consensus in the Jewish tradition is that this is a death that Isaac freely accepted. This was a willing cooperation between father and son 
in order to obey the divine command. Isaac willingly laid himself on the wood to be offered to God. And that was the consent that God was looking for. And when God saw that Abraham consented in his heart to give up his son, and that Isaac consented in himself to give up his very being, that was all that God was looking for. And seeing the consent, God called off the sacrifice because he did not desire the death of Isaac. He did not desire the death of any one of us. But he does desire our consent, uh, our consent to sacrifice, our consent to love. And so when he concedes their consent, he calls off the sacrifice and tells Abraham, there's a ram in the thicket. Go and get the ram. Sacrifice the ram in place of your son. And then after Abraham has done so, God calls from heaven and tells Abraham, I have sworn by my own self, the full text says. And remember that, an, oh, that a covenant is formed by oath swearing. So God swears a covenant oath to Abraham. I have sworn by my own self, says God, because you have not withheld your son, your only begotten son, I will surely bless you. And through your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Genesis 22, 16 through 18. Finally now, the covenant with Abraham is complete. God has taken all the promises that he had given to Abraham and incorporated them into a covenant relationship with that great patriarch. And this covenant with Abraham becomes the fountain of our salvation. And our Blessed Mother refers to it in a passage from the Gospels that we're very familiar with and that we'll see in just a moment. Here we go. Here's what our sheets would look like. We have the three covenants. And Isaac, who is the food of this last covenant, the food offered on the altar. Here we have the Magnificat. The last verses of the Magnificat. Our Blessed Mother thanks God for his faithfulness as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. That's the oath in Genesis 22. The covenant oath given to Abraham is fulfilled in the baby in her womb. That's as far as we can get today. Uh, my voice is giving out. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, <coughs> it is that season up in here in Steubenville and it's going through the faculty. Um, I don't think I can take any questions, unfortunately. <coughs> but um, but that's, a, that's our journey. Next week, we'll do the Mosaic and Davidic covenants and then conclude with the prophets and Jesus in the last week. Thanks so much for being with us tonight. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.